Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 30, Act 1. Dale Davis, artist, educator, champion. Recorded November 2nd, 2019 in New York City. So damn tired of waiting on a perfect A plus B. The one size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now Now they say it's all decided All divided, all laid out And the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives allowed are the only roads you can see Just remember the walls were built to fall For people like you and me Let's start it up now Let's start it up now Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Hey, hey, TA community. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of our global community. Help us spread the word about the podcast by telling a friend or a colleague to subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast player. And last month, the podcast launched a video series on YouTube called Hashtag keep making art. There are a bunch of episodes there and more to come. This is a partnership with Creative Generation where we are exploring how creatives are making and sharing art or guiding others to make and share art. Subscribe to the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body YouTube channel along with all the other social media platforms. What's that? That is Facebook. That is Twitter and Instagram. And, and now we have a pod shop. Ever wanted the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body logo on a tee, on a mug, on a tote bag? Well, now you've got it. Go to teachingartistry.org slash pod shop and shop to your heart's content. So the hashtag keep making art video series has been extremely interesting um, as we've expanded to this podcast or video series uh, platform. And the conversations have been illuminating. They're very timely to the pandemic that we are experiencing and hopefully uplifting towards thinking about a post-pandemic world um, and how artists could be more centered at rebuilding towards a more equitable future. It's helping me to learn and stay connected beyond myself in my tiny little studio apartment. It's not tiny, but you know, I'm alone. (laughs) And um, this episode has two parts. So we thought we'd share a few snippets from some of the guest conversations from the video series. Take a listen. I'm super, super excited to be uh, able to introduce you all to Jeff M. Poulin, who is the founder and managing director of Creative Generation. Hi, Jeff. I was really proud to have been asked to be a part of Keep Making Art. I'm curious, uh, can you tell everybody what is this campaign? Sure. Well, let's start at the beginning. So a couple of weeks ago, a group of funders came to us and said, listen, the world is turned upside down with this global pandemic, and we don't know what to do. So can you help us figure it out? How do we actually help support the arts and culture and education community? And so we responded really quickly with what's called a fast response survey, where we gathered tons of information from people all around the world and drew some key conclusions about what those funders could do to help support our field and our sector in arts and culture and in education. We found two things. The first is that we needed to directly support the most vulnerable population within our sector, the teaching artists and those contract workers who have direct impact with young people and communities. 
And secondly, we needed to more aptly resource organizations and youth and their parents in collaborating together to deliver at-home arts education so that young people and young creatives can continue making their art, dance, music, or theater wherever they may be in this new era of social distancing and physical distancing. Mm -hmm. So with any good research that we do, we also have a campaign. And so we partnered with a group of folks all around the world and launched Keep Making Art just last week, just seven days ago. And what we found was that this campaign is totally in response to COVID-19, where schools have sent students home and community organizations and cultural institutions have shut their doors and parents and educators are working in this new normal of a virtual space. Mm. And everyone seems to be filled with this anxiety about their health and about their well-being. So what we wanted to do was collect the stories and coordinate a communications vehicle on social media to spark joy, to inspire action, and to bring about togetherness. And that's the essence of Keep Making Art. Um, so let's welcome Natalie Barrett-Mass. How are you doing in this moment where we're staying at home and social distancing? Um, I feel, I'd say the first thing that I feel is privilege because mm. I have a home and I have savings to pay for my rent. Mm. I have food in my fridge. Mm -hmm. I have all my instruments in my room and I have two windows. <laughs> um, I share, obviously, like I live in a shared house, so mm -hmm. I have housemates, but my room is mine. So I have this little peace and quiet. Um, so in many ways, even though our freedom is being very limited right now, mm -hmm. I also feel like, wow, I have so many things on my side. Like, I'm healthy. I don't need to be too stressed about money for now. I can create. I can rest. I can look at the sky from my window and the moon. So mm -hmm. I feel like there's a lot to be um, thankful for. So I'd like to get right to our guest, our very special guest, uh, Annie Montgomery. Hi, Annie. Tell me, how are you and your family doing? Uh, well, we're like you. We're all home. My daughter is uh, home from college as well. So the five of us are here in Brooklyn. Thankfully, we've, we're all well. We're all healthy. Um, we're all working at home. David, my husband, works full-time. I work full-time. I have three full-time students. So we are Zooming and distance learning from, you know, bright and early till the evening. We uh, take some scheduled walks every day with my 12-year-old uh, uh, to make sure he gets some activity. And uh, that's it. Uh, we go to the store about once a week because we can't get online delivery. <laughs> can't get a slot. Um, but, I mean, we're lucky. Right now, we're, you know, healthy and employed and um, we're very thankful for that. So mm. I don't take that for granted. So let's get right to our, our first and only guest. It's always just one. <laughs> Darrell Cooper. Hi, Darrell. How are you all doing in this time? You know, it's definitely an adjustment period. Um, you know, the quarantine is very real. It's about as real as you can get. Um, you know, our planet is under a very serious threat right now. But, um, you know, we're, 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 uh, surviving, soon to be thriving, hopefully, on the other side of this. So why don't we get straight to our guest today, Lauren Sharp. How do you identify the, as an artist? Um, primarily, in pre-this moment time, uh, I think of myself as a performing artist of many different disciplines. I grew up as a very serious ballet dancer. Um, I have had forays into improv and comedy and clown and physical theater and so often all of these things play into the work that I make and do. Um, these days I've been more in the theater for young audiences um, river and working with uh, a few different theaters to make work for the very young and also for the not as young young mm -hmm. um, and what I love to do is, is collaborate and devise uh, original pieces of theater. Um, 
Aside from that, I also have been working in, on writing over the past few years and something that I think has been dormant in my life. But, um, and that's what this time has sort of brought out a way to kind of connect in a way that like, um, yeah, doesn't require being in the room. So that's where my angle has gone lately. So I want to get right to our guest, Adam Guan. How do you identify as, a, as an artist? Yeah, I'm a, a, a musical theater writer, I guess is how I would define myself. Um, uh, most often I'm writing songs, music and lyrics um, uh, for musicals in collaboration with a playwright who's writing the script, but I've, I've dabbled in the book writing part as well. So I kind of just say musical, musical theater writer. I'm very excited to introduce to you all Marisol Rosa Shapiro. I would love to know how you identify as an artist. Yeah, so I call myself a theater maker. I wear a lot of hats. So um, I'm often a performer, I direct, I like generate the seeds of, you know, creating original work. Um, and sometimes I clown, I have a, um, a character called Princess Mildred uh, with whom I've made a, a one woman little red nose clown show that I've toured a bunch. Um, but yeah, I, I, I identify as a theater maker of many sort of, who uh, fills many different roles. So let's get right to our first and only guest, <laughs> Jonathan Chapman. What role are, do you have in arts and arts education? Yeah, so right now I'm the executive director of Theater for Young Audiences USA, TYA USA, which is a, the national organization for theater for young audiences. Uh, so we're technically the American chapter of ACETEJ, which is the International Association for Theater for Children and, and Young People. Mm -hmm. um, and acronym. I love it. everything's an acronym. And that one's a, a technically a French one, which is why mm -hmm. we, we, we say TYA USA, not ACETEJ USA. Um, and so we serve about a thousand members nationally. Um, and I feel like my role and our role as an organization has completely changed in the last month as many people's has um, and organizations have. So we shifted really quickly to think about how we could serve the national field as I was recognizing how fast organizations were in crisis and individuals were in, you know, having a hard time. And obviously everybody is having a hard time, but through my lens, you know, the TYA and the TYA field is my focus. And I was watching how organizations were really struggling. Um, so we, as a service organization, our job is really to support the field, to think about professional development, connection, advocacy. Um, so we kind of scrapped all of our plans for the rest of the, you know, the next uh, couple months. And all of our programming has been in support of the field in response to COVID-19. So we- So let's get straight to our guest, George Rodriguez. Hi, George. You wanted to show a few pieces that are in process. Can you tell us about what the work is, where the inspiration um, came from, and let's see what you got. Yeah, so I have, uh, so I did mention that a little in process, um, I can kind of show sure. a couple things here. Um, so these are all clay. Um, un, they've been fired one time, so they're a little strong. You can kind of hear the strength of them. Um, but these will, um, I was able to kind of like take them away from my studio um, at the university and kind of sneak them to my home. Um, I don't have a lot of access here in my apartment. It's very small uh, for working with like a dirty heavy material, but I am able to paint and finish uh, the work. So I tend to put a lot of ornamentation decoration on the surface. Um, this is a, a luchador, a Mexican wrestler. Um, and it's just a head because I'm making separate bodies that these heads could be interchangeable on. Uh, so they'll kind of like rest on the, on the base of the neck. Um, but so I have this, this is just kind of showing the ornamentation with a lot of the, with just a lot of the- um, It's so intricate. This, there's a lot of decoration definitely that goes into it. And I use molds to um, create this ornamentation. So it can move relatively quick. Um, but I'll grab the next, the next one. I have everything kind of staged. Um, <laughs> um, but this is adding some, some of the color. And this is what I've been able to do um, here at home. And this will go back into a kiln and get refired again. And it'll kind of brighten up or deepen the color that's on the surface. 
Um, but this is another one of the other figures um, with, you know, just kind of not a luchador. This one's more based around Egyptian pharaohs and uh, chola um, style makeup, which I saw these correlations to. So. so you saw the correlations to from what? From like the Egyptian pharaoh kind of eye uh. Um, uh, decoration to um, like Chola, which is this Chicana style makeup, typically around like Southern Los Angeles, that was like very dark eyeliner, very dark eyebrows. So what I have here is um, just a, a head. It's about human sized, um, maybe a little bit smaller. And the head is wearing, it's very highly ornamented in this flower motif, but the eyes and the mouth and the nose are still accessible in the pattern of a Mexican wrestler, a luchador. Mm -hmm. So the entirety of the face is covered in this, um, is em I would say embellished in flowers. And you can still see that, or you can still recognize it as um, a person wearing a mask, uh, a wrestling mask. It's all made out of clay, none of it's movable, but it's uh, supposed to signify like a fabric or a string tie on the back. The second piece is, so started out the same as the other um, mask, just in regards to decoration. Um, so what I, I'll just talk a little bit about the process, but I make the basic shape of the head and then I ornament with these flower motifs or different, um, what, what are called sprigs of decoration. So these are embellishments that are added to the surface. Um, so this um, second head is the same size, but it has, um, it doesn't have the face fully covered. It's almost wearing like a hat or a, or a cap in a way. So the face is still fully exposed. Um, and I started to apply some of, the, some of the color on the flower motifs in a, just kind of a, a varied pattern. And for this, I wanted to reference Egyptian culture uh, because of um, kind of the, with this head, I wanted it to kind of mimic, or I was thinking about pharaohs and just kind of like the monumentality of, of what pharaohs represented. Mm. So I used turquoise and kind of a goldish color to add onto the surface of these flowers and then started to deepen and darken the eyes in this pharaoh-like um, elongated quality, which then made me think of uh, cholas in, uh, in like southern Los Angeles, southern California, which is this um, Chicana style of makeup that's very dark around the eyes also, dark eyebrows. So this is kind of a cross-cultural reference between I don't know, a lot of my work has to, has to do with um, blurring boundaries and how we, as people from all over the world, um, look at very similar imagery, even though we tend to categorize it separately. So I'd like to introduce our first guest, or our first guest, it's our only guest, but it's a great guest. Uh, Eric Booth, what do you see happening for teaching arts during this crisis? Well, I'm, I've seen a couple of things. They've been reacting in their usual ebullient way, putting stuff out. Mm -hmm. uh, if the, I think the big message so far in this uh, interim time, this liminal time, is get stuff out on the internet. Mm -hmm. And it has been both uh, impressive at how much stuff is coming out and uh, kind of illuminating for the kind of stuff we've kind of how much we don't know about right. putting stuff out. It's a pretty narrow range of offer and there's way more of putting out of art than there is teaching artistry, finding a way to activate the artistry of people through this medium. Teaching Artistry Podcast has partnered with Association of Teaching Artists for a three-month episode series highlighting the 2019 ATA Award recipients. Now, so far, we have featured Ed Friedman and Maura O'Malley from Lifetime Arts and Ali Santana. And now, this is our third and final installment featuring Dale Davis, artist, educator, and founding member of Association of Teaching Artists. I had the pleasure of working with Dale for approximately four years of my five years as a board member while she was executive director of ATA. 
Dale was given the Distinguished Service to the Field Award. Um, and in this first part of the conversation, we learn about her beginnings and her entry point into arts education. Here is Dale Davis, Episode 30, Act 1, Artist, Educator, Champion. Hi, Dale. Hi, Courtney. <laughs> Thanks for joining me on this podcast. I'm delighted to join you, Courtney. I think what you're doing is, is so valuable. Oh, thank you. Um, can you um, just let us know, let the audience know where, uh, you know, what your role is in the arts and uh, education field? Well, I'm executive director of the New York State Literary Center that I founded in 1979. Ah, 1979. Okay. And um, you and I know each other through the Association of Teaching Arts. I believe that's the that's where we met long before I was on the board. Um, so when did you start working at, uh, at the, or when were you involved with the Association of Teaching Artists? It would have been in 1998 because I was there for 20 years. I was one of the founders. Great. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about the literary center. We're gonna talk about um, the association, and I really want to get into like other um, passions of yours as well. But I thought we'd start with um, a very simply where you grew up and and um, what kind of uh, kid were you? I grew up in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. Mm. I still consider myself a daughter of the Commonwealth. Uh, Dalton, Massachusetts is a small town. It's about 5,000 people um, in the Berkshires. That's where I grew up. I was an athlete, played basketball. Um, I was also, I studied. I was a, a student. And um, in fact, it was my high school reunion this year. I couldn't go um, because it was just after I had surgery, so I couldn't travel. But um I'm very devoted to Dalton and the Berkshires. Mm. We go there several times a year for the theater. Uh, we saw a wonderful production of Raisin of the Sun at Williamstown this year. Um, I just love all the attractions of the Berkshires. I've actually so go never back been. all the time. I still feel my heart is there. Oh, oh, that's nice. I've actually never been to the Berkshires um, someday. Um, where, where do you live now? In Fairport, New York, outside of Rochester, right. a small village, which I was attracted to some, I guess, 50 years ago because it was a small town. Mm. Now it's uh, quite suburban to Rochester. We still have our own village. It's a lovely village, though. Mm. Um, that's that's lovely. I mean, I I went to school in upstate New York, so I central New York. Um, so I, uh, as somebody who l grew up in Long Island, I wasn't um like upstate to me was Westchester, um until yeah. I went to college, and then I just discovered this whole new, um uh, for me a whole world of uh Rochester and Buffalo and Ithaca and just, um Syracuse and Utica, um all these beautiful places that I just never explored before. Um, and I can see the appeal. I can absolutely see the appeal. Um, Fairport's, uh, Fairport's outside of Rochester. Mm -hmm. um, I have been very active in Fairport. I was a member of the Zoning Board of Appeals for many, many years. Um, so I've been active in my community. I've always, has, always have been active, but as I say, I was a member of the Zoning Board of Appeals for many years. So, you know, that's interesting that you said I've been uh, I've always been very active and always, and was very studious and, a, and an athlete as a kid. Um, when it, it, I have, you know, so I met you, you know, well into um, your tenure at, at Association of Teaching Artists. And I always felt then that you were quite an activist. Um, would you say would you call yourself an activist? Oh, yes, I would. Mm -hmm. And what, what do you think uh, you could, do you recall like what your first cause was or what your um, passion was around activism? Um, I'm trying to think. It was when I was in college, I went door to door uh, for Jack Kennedy. I was in the, mm. um, I was at the College of New Rochelle and I was assigned uh, apartments in Harlem to go into buildings. Um, and have people vote for Kennedy. So I did that. Mm. Uh, but I've always been active. I had a cousin who was a Congress congressman in, um, in the Berkshires and worked on his campaigns. Cool. Um, that's that's really but for social causes, I mm -hmm. uh, did work. I did go to uh, 
meetings in the summer when I was again in high school and came home from college for racial integration mm-hmm. in neighborhoods and in the Berkshires. So it's always been active. Mm. I've always been active. And what, what, were your family, did, did, was the act, is it, uh, sorry, the activism, was that prevalent in your family or was that something that um, you just found for, on your own? I would say, I would say, yes, it was not as, as uh, formal as mine was, but they were very active. I grew mm. up with that, mm. you know, yeah. And I also love asking this question around the arts. So as a kid, how how did you engage in the arts or how are the arts uh, present uh, in your childhood? Oh, that's a great question, Courtney. Just because I, I have been very active um, recently in the past couple of years trying to save the Berkshire Museum because mm-hmm. they deaccessioned a lot of the collection. Mm. Um and I used to, my parents sent me to courses at the Berkshire Museum when I was very young. That was my first exposure to arts. I would always go to courses from painting to photography. I remember um, my first photography course there. But that museum was a very important part of my life as a child. And when they were deaccessioning, I became very active in a group of people from the Berkshires, many of them, New York City transplants who moved there. We tried to save it, including... Norman Rockwell Shuffleton's Barbershop, which was one of, I think, one of his greatest paintings. Mm. That was bought by the Locust Museum um, in California. So, yes, it was my first exposure, and going to it was, uh, you know, through the Berkshire Museum, and yet I still went back, even though it was the accession. They have a new director now, but it's not the same museum that I went to. Also went to theater mm. uh, with my parents quite a bit. My father and mother took us. We went to the Williamstown Playhouse. Um, so yes, I was exposed to the arts. Um, little known fact that the Williamstown Playhouse, um, the Williamstown office in New York City is, um, literally on my floor where oh, I work. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. we saw, we saw the best production mm. of Raisin in the Sun this, this year. Summer? I can't yeah. it enough. I love that play. I love Lorraine Hansberry. I love... Yes. I saw um, the production. I, I believe I just found a playbill from 2014 uh, when Denzel Washington played Walter Lee. Um, and that was the first time I had ever seen a, a production of it. And I, you know, held 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 out until I <laughs> could see something that would sort of um, m- match, I guess, my vision of what that play should should look like, feel like, be. Um, and the movie, of course, is something I've, I've watched a few times. But um, what was it about that particular production that spoke to you? Uh, at, the end, at the end of it, um, he came out and asked the audience the same questions. Instead of saying them to each other, he directed them directly to the audience. Oh. That was powerful. Very powerful. And what, for those of us who don't know the play, what's the question? The questions were, what are you doing? And there were a lot of questions at the end of the play. As I say, mm-hmm. I have taught that play. I have read that play. I have seen that play. But this uh, this production just really knocked me out. That's awesome. I love... A p- I not, that- not only that, the Berkshires, I was uh, sitting outside in the uh, foyer, the outdoor foyer there, and a, a woman next to me, we started talking. And I mentioned I was from the Berkshires. And she said, who was your family? And I told her. And uh, she actually knew an aunt, which we talked about. Which uh-huh. was, I think that's going home, too, when people know your family. Mm. Mm. I have two things that I, I'm still sort of still on the, what you were talking about, the powerful piece and, and the power of, of art and what it can do uh, to an individual, for an individual. Um I feel like you have probably some nuggets to share. Like what, what is it that, um, you know, how, how would you phrase or how would you describe the power of, of the arts or, or somebody engaging or having exposure to the arts? Like what can it do for a human being? I think it can open your mind, um, and get you involved. And I, that's, I think that's in all my teaching. That's one of the things I care most about is to open the mind of the students. Mm-hmm. By the way, in the uh, Raisin of the Sun, we saw at Williamstown, it was Apotha Murkison who um, 
play the mother in that play, which is so, so powerful. Mm. Like, I can't praise that production at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, that's um, another thing that you brought up just now about home, that feeling of home and, what, you know, and talking to um, a fellow audience member who knew your family or at least your aunt. Um, um, that's another question. That's a question that I'm having in my mind right now. Um, uh, fun fact, I'm in the process of... Um, revamping my home my my little studio apartment in brooklyn um that i have accumulated a great deal of stuff and i'm trying to purge <laughs> and clean and rearrange furniture and just sort of organize better so that i have a little bit more headspace because that can build some anxiety but i'm i'm curious because I, I know that you also i know that you write i know that you engage in a lot of different kinds of poetry um so i'm, I'm i don't know where i'm going with this exactly but i'm intrigued by the concept of home um, that, you know, we all have different ideas of what a home means, um, especially in a, in a world where, um, the push pull in terms of migration and refugees is very present and very, um, loud in our society and our yeah. global society. Um, so I'm just curious, I don't know if you have any response to that. You don't have to. <laughs> I can't really, um, I can't really think of it, but when you're moving, your it's your apartment. I came back, although the house that we live in was mm. built in 1850. Mm. It's an Italian Victorian in the village. And uh, as you could say, living here for a lot of years brought a lot of things. And there are a lot of things in it which I am going through now. One of them was, uh, I guess it was in the early 80s, I... Uh, I became very intrigued with a poet named Myla Loy, who I still am. In fact, I published her in letterpress with my uh, press, the Sigma Foundation. But I had written a letter to Dr. James Sibley Watson, Jr., who lived in Rochester, who published the Dial magazine in the 1920s. I wrote him a letter and asked about, because he published Myla Loy. And um, he asked, we, we wrote back and forth several times, People wrote letters then, mm. and he finally invited me for tea. I went for tea. Walking in to the room with Dr. Watson was quite something, because as I walked in, he lived in a big house uh, in Rochester. As I walked into the room on the left, I looked and I said, this is a Picasso, and it was. Um, it was actually the Picasso that Gertrude Stein wrote about um, in her autobiography. But anyway, I, we became friends, and... Uh, I became his literary executor, so I have quite a bit of material from him, including he made two um, avant-garde films. One is The Fall of the House of Usher, and um, it's, it's still seen quite a bit. It's very big in avant-garde films, and um, I have all the information he gave me on that. So you know, what do you do with this? This is the kind of thing I'm looking at right now. Mm. Dr. Watson was a very important presence in my life. Um, he read poetry like nothing in the world. He could just zero right in on it. And, of course, he had been there. I was a modernist scholar. He had been part of that movement. Mm. Um, he published, by the way, T.S. Eliot's Wasteland in the Dial. Oh. They gave the, Eliot the, uh, the Dial Award because of that. Um, but the Dial became a big presence, and I was very interested in it because of the number of women it published mm -hmm. um, at that time. And Douglas Watson also... Uh, provided funding to pay for lawyers for Margaret Anderson and James Jane Heap when uh, you know in in cases of uh, censorship this kind of thing when mm. they published James Joyce oh yeah you know the the literary world is not um, one that I'm deeply knowledgeable about um, do you have a favorite writer Today? Today. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think. Mm. I like Kendrick Lamar. Mm. <laughs> Very much. Yeah. I like Tahanisi Coates. I'm reading him. I've just read uh, Dwayne Betts. Oh. I've just ordered Felon. I haven't read that, but I have taught several of his uh, uh, his books, mm -hmm. and I've just ordered Felon. Um, the other, I'm trying to think, I've just ordered... Oh, I know Zora Neale Hurston. They have just yeah. published her some uh, it had, uh, some writing of hers that hadn't been published yet. I just ordered oh. that too. Okay, I need to get it. So yes, that. I mm -hmm. am reading, but mainly I've been reading 
uh, you know, when I started working with the incarcerated, mm-hmm. uh, I think I bought every book by someone, a great many books, by people who had been incarcerated, because that was how I learned, mm. um, you know, where I was going, what I was doing, and I have a tremendous library of that. So that my bulk of my reading, and of course the book I've been spending a tremendous amount of time with is David Blight's book on Frederick Douglass. I have taught mm-hmm. Frederick Douglass for probably 25 years, and I'm very interested in uh, David Blight's book on Douglass. And what what is uh, so I don't know. I recovered from the surgery with mm-hmm. the, the Blight book right next to me. <laughs> mm. So who is David uh, I Blight? I have read before, but it takes several readings to really digest everything mm. in the book. And and who is Di- David Blight? He was a, he's emeritus at Yale. Mm. Um, I had taught. Well, I've taught. I've introduced some of his essays in the New York Times on Douglas mm. um, in 1918. There are a lot of them are on the Literary Center website in the reading list um, that the inmates really reacted. I, I don't use the word inmates. I use the word incarcerated mm-hmm. that those in my classes um, really responded to. And as I say, Douglas to me is a tremendous, tremendous presence. Um, a couple of things. So Ta-Nehisi Coates, I, I haven't read, I had not read his books. I've read a lot of his articles in the Atlantic. And then I just recently, I went to a book launch uh, event at the King's Theater in Brooklyn, um, for the water dancer. Um, and, and I sort of devoured it. Like I read it really quickly and I need, I actually need to go back and read it again. It's a tremendous novel, a tremendous amount. Uh, It it just, it hits in ways that I, I don't understand. I don't, I can't describe right yet. Um, but it's a, he's a beautiful, beautiful writer. Um, he's a great writer. And the stories. Uh, the novel you're talking about, yes. It's so good. It's Everybody needs to read it. And um, yeah, there's a whole like sort of movement that's happening around it. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to just mention is uh, I just said that I was doing this whole revamp in my, or like, you know, purging. And so one of the, one of the big pieces was that I, I bought a bookshelf I'm outing myself a little bit that I bought a bookshelf uh, two years ago and finally had um, some really fine friends help me build it (laughs) and go through my books and um, decide like what I wanted to keep and what I wanted to donate. And one of the things that I was hoping to be able to figure out, maybe you can help me with this, is is there a way for me to donate some of my books to people who are incarcerated or into... Yes. Yeah? There is. I have... uh... On the Literary Center website, under resources, I have a, a there's a, one of the resources where you can donate. We could not, uh, when I, at the correctional facility, we did not have hardcover books because they were considered to be weapons. I see. So it was, um, it was soft-covered mm-hmm. books. I have to say, when you say book donations, what they mean, I had read Jimmy Santiago Baca on, on his uh, time in prison, and it was absolutely amazing, and writing everything. Um, so I brought him in. Mm-hmm. I named a room. I had a room at Monroe County Jail. I named it the Jimmy Santiago Baca uh, Writing and Publishing Center, Writing Library and Publishing Center. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned, I wrote to him about it. And he was a judge for National Book Award at one point. Mm-hmm. I came home one day after that, a couple of weeks later, and on my front porch with these tremendous number of boxes. Jimmy Santiago Baca had donated a library. Oh, wow. Uh, which went at two Monroe County Jail for the inmates to read. It was just as, a, it, it's, as he had been a judge and contested his own personal library. It was tremendous. Good books to yeah. me are so important for people to read while they are incarcerated. And when you say good books. I about not reading what I think is good literature yeah. wasting their time. <laughs> Right. So, what do you what do you mean by good books? What are what's good literature in your opinion? History. Well, particularly for uh, working with the uh, working with the incarcerated, I have most of my students have not had good, a good education. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to get them to read to give them a good education mm. to find out what's out there. So I'm saying, don't read a murder mystery. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I, okay, that's actually really helpful for me because of course I have plenty of thrillers 
like fiction, like just, you know, that kind of fun read. But then I have other books that I, that are like theater books and other books that um, could be really interesting um, for somebody to read that I've already, you know, gone through and don't necessarily need anymore. Um, So, you know, I could go through the books that I've pulled out um, and sort of segment um, because there's also like, I, so my, my goal here is, you know, I bought, I've gotten these books. They've given me the joy that I needed at the time that I had them for the time that I had them. And now it's time to sort of, you know, pay it forward or share, um, share it forward. And in my neighborhood, there are, um, yard libraries where you can put, uh, you know, put books in and you sort of put a book in and take a book out. So I'm hoping to be able to, you know, segment and decide like, okay, well, here are some books that I can donate to this, um, group or, or, and to this, you know, lot yard library, that yard library, et cetera. Um, and and then I'll figure out the rest and maybe to a library or something. They, I, could, I could tell you, Courtney, yes. they would be most welcome. Okay, that's um, good. For the incarcerated. Excellent. I don't I, whether it's I don't know the prisons around you, uh, Rikers, but they would be if Rikers is going out. Yeah, they're closing now, but I mean, it. Uh, um, they, they would be most welcome. They are all the time. That's great. Okay. And um, I've had people. We've I've had literary center donors who've donated up. Uh, you know, two dozen of Frederick Douglass's mm-hmm. uh, narrative, so everybody could have their own book. That oh, was a very nice. big thing. You could take it when you go home. Mm. So let's also, let's go there. Children's books. Children's books oh. are always welcome um, okay. for the incarcerated because they have children. Mm. And my passion right now um, are children whose parents are incarcerated. Mm. That's, that's something I've spent a lot of time on. I've done a lot of research on it, and I'm still working on that. So let's just go back because you're so knowledgeable, not just of literature, but of of um, the incarceration and the the system. Um, I'm just curious, like, like, okay, so you said you started the Literary Center in 1979. What led you to that? Like, I, I guess I'm just trying to mark time a little bit that we talked about how you were um, politically active in terms of canvassing for um, JFK and and then there were other kinds of things so between you know that time which i guess was 1959 1960 to 1979 what was happening for you that got you to the place of of starting a literary center uh, when i i had been writing poetry when i was uh, living in boston when i moved uh, to rochester i had been writing yeah, i was still writing poetry of course mm-hmm. um, but i received a call one day from a gentleman who said he was with a fairly new organization called the New York State Council on the Arts. Mm. And what I consider going into schools working with poetry with children, he knew my publications. My response was, oh, no, I took education courses. They were horrible. <laughs> and I'm not sure how I'll do with children. Mm. But I went in, and that started my career. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I worked in Poets in the Schools. This would have been in 1970. I was in Poets in the Schools. We had a group of poets all over New York State. We used to meet together. In fact, it was Galen Williams, the poets and writers, who brought us together. When Poets in the Schools became incorporated, um, they asked me to be the director of the first one. I couldn't because um, um, I had two young children, and it meant traveling. Mm. But I came back to Rochester, you know, still worked in Rochester, still was going into schools, got other poets involved. And then I really decided, huh, yes, you could do these poets, but other things are going on in school besides poetry. At that point, when we went in, every all the poetry in school rhymed. Um, and I swear I learned William Carlos Williams by typing out his poems all the time to bring into the classroom on a typewriter. That's what we had, mimeographs. But when, um, after a while, I one of, the, one of the schools I was in, um, when they were studying Homer, they did. Uh, they did the Odyssey, and they made dioramas. They weren't reading. They weren't reading the Odyssey. And the other is, I got a call from my daughter's teacher uh, in Fairport and asked me that they were uh, they were studying Latin America, and could I make tacos and bring them in? And I said, Well, you know, I'm really not a very good cook, but I do have a lot of literature I could bring in and talk about the poetry. Mm. The teacher's response was, bring you the tacos. Oh. Um, I was not expecting point, I wrote a grant to go that way. To Ooh. New York State Ed. Ooh. Called it uh, Explore Latin America. 
uh, with a, I worked on it with a fifth grade, not my daughter's, at another school, another district. That's when I brought Octavio Paz from Mexico here. And Miranikas Monagal, who uh, was at Yale in Latin American Studies, and really wanted to educate teachers and wrote a curriculum for um, how do you study Mexico. We, we worked with the Aztecs. Um, we, did, we did a lot of literature to try to say that this is bigger than, uh, you know, tacos when you study something. So I, at that point, I became very interested in the curriculum in schools. Mm. And so that and had from it, that, yeah. mm-hmm. keep going, keep going. Sorry. And and from that, uh, Al Poulin, who uh, had started Bo Editions, he was a professor at Brockport, who had started Bo Editions, which is still going now under Peter Connors, is a wonderful uh, small press. Al said, uh, "What about starting a nonprofit?" He was looking for distribution for Boa. And he knew my work, and he said, let's, let's start something called the New York State Literary Center. I said, New York State? He said, yeah, if we don't do that, they won't pay attention to New York City. Mm. Um, so we started it and started getting funding, and um, the first program was the Explore Latin America. After that, it was on ancient Greece, and I brought Robert Fitzgerald up from Harvard um, to, teach, to teach a sixth grade. The New York Times reporter who was there that day said, what's the difference between teaching a sixth grade and teaching at Harvard? He said, none. A classroom is a classroom. And I believed that also. Mm. So that was how the Literary Center started and why I started it. Because I wanted to go bigger than just going in and not bigger, but I wanted to go deeper. If I was going to get involved in education and it was becoming my career at this point, I wanted to bring more to it, mm. to education. And that meant getting involved in the curriculum. So where did that lead you from there once it was sort of um, established? Then I got very involved um, when I was, I think the next big step was um, at a suburban high school when I was doing a residency and I realized I really didn't know a lot about the students. And uh, even though my own two children, by the way, were a graduate course and what to bring into the schools, I learned so much from them. But in this particular high school, I realized the most interesting art was on the inside of their lockers and who they listened to, Mm. what music they were listening to. So um, I worked with, wrote a play. I took their writing and adapted it into a play and called Life We Call It Home. Um, I'm trying to think of what year, what year that would have been. Anyway, it was performed at the high school, and it was the largest drawing play that the high school had had in a long time. Mm. I think ever at that point, and it toured, it toured New York State. Did a lot of Billy Joel. We didn't like the fire, uh, but I also had a monologue by some students that followed the Grateful Dead. So it had to do much with the music. Mm. It had to do with, uh, I called, I borrowed it from a poem, like we call it home, we'll see Clifton, but um, talked at who are we? So that became the student voice. Then the student voice became very important to me. Mm-hmm. And after that, when I started working, um, I realized, and I, I also at this point was working for the national faculty. Uh, going all over the country doing teacher courses. My first assignment was uh, Juneau, Alaska. My second assignment, Honolulu, Hawaii. So I was going all over the country, you know, teaching youth culture. At that point, the dean of the national faculty said to me, well, you're really, what you do is teach youth culture. So that became, um, I went in and did that. I was very interested in Kurt Cobain, Eddie Vedder. Um, really looking into this music and what did it say? What was appealing to kids about it? Mm. Um, just to, then, oh, sorry. I was just going to mark, I, if I may. all of a sudden I realized, <laughs> I realized the music that really mattered mm. to me mm-hmm. and I could do something about it was in a classroom was down 911 and they won't come. They won't, <laughs> I love Public Enemy. I love KRS-One and Grandmaster Flash. I love how you're dating oh. us through the music. So we didn't start the fire. It was in the <laughs> mid-80s, mid to late 80s. Yeah. Nirvana um, and Kurt Cobain, right? That's that's like 1991, you know? <laughs> like, um, and then Public Enemy, also like 90, 90, in the early 90s. 
I want to say 93, but that it could be earlier than that. Um, so I'm just, I'm just trying to mark, mark it in case people don't know this, mu- these, the music titles that you're, um, and my son, my son called me one day. He was out in, uh, in, in Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, working for a, a rap show called Pump It Up, which was on like at one o'clock in the morning, of mm-hmm. course, because mm-hmm. this is, uh, you know, when hip hop was not big. Mm-hmm. He called me and he said, Bob, I've just heard of a rapper. He said, it's everything you believe in. I'm going to send you all the videos. You're going to love it. His name was Tupac Amaro Shakur, and mm-hmm. the piece he sent me was Brenda's Got a Baby. Mm-hmm. And I became a very big fan of Tupac. I have every CD, um, every interview, everything he's ever done, because I used him at school. I still use him mm-hmm. with students, because I think he was truly a great artist. Mm-hmm. So yes, I have been very influenced by the music and the culture. So that's interesting. The youth youth culture. Um, I've I I just rem- I remember you you quoted in somewhere you recently, you quoted Kendrick Lamar, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. I didn't. I, I'm mm, interesting. And then to hear where it all started, in terms of looking at music and and reaching young people in terms of liter- uh, literature through the music that they were listening to and connecting to music is a it is a wonderful thing because it can mark like where we are and where we're going and sometimes where and we've I been, don't dismiss right? the music to use it to something else I think it's a great air form mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's um, I wanted we talk about how do we how do we listen to this what are we really listening to mm-hmm. um, and that that I care about a tremendous about well, Kendrick Lamar um, to me when I heard that first heard it I just this was it to me mm-hmm. <laughs> this is um, and I did know uh, used to go to a lot of uh, I did uh, go to concerts uh, at one point uh, what was it Anthrax, Megadeth and Slayer which were metal groups mm-hmm. were doing a concert at Darien Lake near Rochester mm-hmm. and I went and brought a videographer with me and interviewed kids in the parking lot mm-hmm. as to why they were there and you know what most of them several of them said and I had it on video God, we hope this works because just think you'll get to a lot of little metalheads. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked going to concerts very much. Concerts are awesome. So, <laughs> so yes, the public, the, uh, it has, uh, it has influenced me a lot. Mm. And when did you start um, working in, uh, in prisons? Uh, 19, excuse me, 20,004 Literary Center. I had been, the Literary Center's contracts had been with alternative education programs, mm. um, residential placement. We started, all the work was with, with the kids that didn't fit in at schools. Mm-hmm. So went around and did that for many years, did residencies and all of them published. I'm going over a lot of the books I have published of their work because it is a wonderful history of childhood and what we have done to these children by isolating them. Um, Mm. And then the alternative high school, I was taken to a lunch, I think it was around 2004, by an assistant superintendent in the Rochester City School District who said to me, have you ever considered going into jails? I said, no, I haven't. I had no idea. Would you be interested? I said, I guess I would, yes. So I did a residency with um, incarcerated youth. And that's when the Empire State Partnership program, Mm -hmm. which you were associated with, was Mm -hmm. very big. Mm -hmm. And they helped this grow tremendously um, through their funding. And so I started, what's about 2005, I think, was my, I've just done uh, a a narrative on the Literary Center website. I guess the first year we had a real formal program was 2006, 2007. And at that, I brought in um, Lemon Anderson, who was a uh, deaf poet, the actor. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved his, uh, he, he had a piece he talked about, he learned to write at Rikers. And I wrote him and asked him if he could come up and do a residency uh, in the jail. He did come up. So again, it's been bringing in people that, you know, would, really relate to children 
at that year had a steel drum band where he would be incarcerated and brought in the Beat Within from San Francisco, which is a journal of writing by uh, incarcerated youth, and mm-hmm. brought that in so we could really look at what was going on. When I got there, I realized I was in the right place. First of all, I knew some of the students. I had had them in other programs. Mm. So had I expected I would end up there, Courtney? No, Mm. I did not. (laughs) Am I happy I was there? Yes, I am. Mm. So, so tell me what it, yeah, I mean, does it go back to that question that was asked of your... Um, friend from Harvard, your colleague from Harvard, you know, what's the difference between teaching youth in alternative high schools or teaching people in in prison? He he was not, by the way, he was emeritus at Harvard and translated the early in the Odyssey. I wouldn't call him a colleague. I was great, great respect of his his translation. And by the way, when he was in that sixth grade class, Mm -hmm. and I've written about this, a young man in that class was Benny Siciliano, and Benny took notes. And he handed it to, to Robert Fitzgerald. And he wrote, he took notes in Greek. And the teacher said, Betty doesn't know Greek. And Robert said, but nobody told him that he didn't. I was so, yes. Oh. Um, and to me, a classroom is a classroom. Right. And the exciting thing to me, and it's very difficult teaching, incarcerated uh, education is, is not easy. Uh, but you are able to, at some point, to turn on minds that have not been turned on before, and that's exciting. So I guess my curiosity is, um, you know, what are, what are, what makes it a a difficult situation to teach in, um, or, and, or, um, you know, what are, what are some approaches to, um, reaching those minds that you were talking about before? Knowing your, again, my approach to teaching has always been, you can tell through youth culture, is knowing who your students are first. Mm -hmm. Who are your students? Um, and that, I started studying, and that's why I read the books by people incarcerated, wanted to find out, and asked the students to write about themselves. Mm-hmm. And again, with hip-hop, it was a wonderful thing, because hip-hop is telling stories. Mm. And um, I listened to their stories. And we read, you know, we listened to a lot of hip-hop. I, I produced, I think, what, I don't know, maybe 30 CDs of their writing. Brought in someone to do the beats, and... Uh, or sometimes, many times, uh, the incarcerated themselves did the beats. Mm-hmm. Um, they did the writing and brought in a, a recording and produced them. It was a way I had to learn their language. I loved hip-hop, but again, we shared a common common love of hip-hop, and they know almost immediately if you're saying you love it and you don't. Like the teacher will say, write a rap. Well, it's not just write a rap, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's social commentary. Mm-hmm. So we, I, you know, did it that way. And ha- usually we had the lyrics printed out. We read them, um, and studied them. And we looked at problems that were going on in the community. Rochester has a tremendous poverty rate, and a school system that really doesn't work. We looked at these. Uh, at one point with the literary center, we invited a superintendent in, and these students wrote to him what would have made an ideal school. And then they read their writing for the superintendent about what would make an ideal school, what would have kept them at school. But it's also knowing what you can't do. You can't change the neighborhood. You can't change the situation. And then you look at what can you do. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um... And we do a lot. I did a lot with theater. Uh, which was a great tool for them. I would take their writing, as much as I did in that suburban high school, would adapt it uh, into a play. Then they read it, we performed it, uh, we invited people in at that point, you know, all kinds of uh, educators uh, from uh, district administrators, but to give them a chance to open a dialogue, and a play was a great, a great way to do that. It, it infused with local history. That's why Douglas was in Rochester. We studied Douglas. We studied a lot of local history because one of the things I soon discovered working with the incarcerated is there was no no historical knowledge. So how do we build on that and work that into every program? Mm -hmm. And the most important thing I think is I believe in them 
and I think everybody has a story to tell. So th- you you have all these CDs, you said, at 30. Um, you have a lot of writings, like original writings. Yes. Um, that, that have been published. Um, or do, you, do you think that you'd want to do anything in terms of like creating an anthology or is there any plan in, in place for... Um... You hit the question that I'm thinking about right now. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you just hit it completely. <laughs> I'm going through it. You know, uh, I hate to say it, when I go back and look at residential placement in the early 90s, mm. and I look at what they're writing today, it's the same old story, mm. quote, the song, but no one listens. Yeah. And it repeats and it repeats. And children of incarcerated parents, um, that prison, you know, school-to-prison pipeline, the chance if your parent is incarcerated that you're going to be is is tremendous. So how do we break that? How do we get people to listen right. um, to, the, to the writing, to the students? It, now I'm working with, you know, adults. I work with incarcerated adults, and my students could be anywhere from 20 up to 65. Mm. Uh, but we exchange. And how do we, when you look at it, that's what I'm grappling with right now, Courtney, to bring it together. Mm. Um, how to say that? You know, times have changed. But, quote, the message, don't push me out close to the edge. It's close. It's still there. Mm. <laughs> Grandmaster Flash did it a long time ago with mm. the Furious Five. Mm. And by the way, that's one of my favorite all time. Such a good one. The message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. I'm and the play, curious about this. The like, plays yeah. were a great way for that for dialogue. Mm-hmm. You know, first of all, they had to get up in front of each other. Um, we had no sets, we had nothing, but you had to get up in front of each other, mm-hmm. and you know, say the words to an audience. It, it worked. Mm. And theater, I mean, I think more Shakespeare is performed in American prisons than anywhere else in the country. Really? Theater in prisons, yeah, theater in prisons is is very big. So you know, you know about rehabilitation through the arts. Oh yeah, yeah, big fan. Yeah, yeah, big fan. Um, and there, they people who go through their program, I learned this because I had um. Well, first I saw a, a, a panel discussion with um, members who had been through the program and, and were n- yeah. no longer incarcerated, um, and then folks who uh, were running the organization. And I was very impressed then, and this is not a field that I'm, or, or an area, a population that I, I currently work with. Um, so I was just really impressed and in uh, yeah, astonished, and um, and then more recently, when I was teaching a course at at the new school, I had a a, a, a segment of the course was looking at different populations, and so I thought I wanted to make sure that we brought somebody in from that organization to talk about um, the program that they do, and it it was somebody who used to who somebody who's the, a current program manager or somebody who runs a lot of the programs named Charles Moore, and he was somebody who went through the program when he was incarcerated. Um, and it was a really powerful, uh, guest facilitation. And unfortunately it was only one session, but it was, um, it made a huge impression on those students. Um, and one of the, one of the stats that I heard was that people who have gone through their program, their recidivism rate was like, like something like really, really low. I I don't know what that, I I can't, I, I, 97% is the, the number that I have, but I think that's 97% of the people who've gone through the program have not returned to prison. We did a study. Mm -hmm. We did a study with the literary center a few years ago. Um, and we did reduce the recidivism rate mm-hmm. at the, and again, where we worked in the, the Monroe Correctional Facility is where you are sentenced to do a county year or under. It is not a prison. It's a county correctional facility. Mm-hmm. Um, we did reduce the recidivism rate. We don't have. That would be the ideal, as you're talking about. You could come out and you have a place afterwards. We do not do that. Mm-hmm. I see. The Literary Center is a small organization. Um and it's just, it's not, we don't do it. Exactly. It should be probably because it does work. It mm-hmm. gives you a place afterwards. Mm. Can you say what the Literary Center's um, website URL is? Yes, it's New York State 
Literary Center, nyslc.org. N-Y- Great. nyslc.org. Great, because I'm going to go there to figure out how and where I can um, donate some books and what would be useful and just to do a little bit more um, searching. We had a wonderful program uh, with the Broadway Theater League um, for four years where if you were in the program, you could, and you attendance, and you did all the, you turned everything in. When you got out, you and your family could attend a Broadway musical. I have a lot of those photos on the website, too. Mm. Um, that was a wonderful program. I do hear, I just got a, maybe I could pull it up here. I just got an email from someone I worked with. I didn't even remember. I, I had to look up his writing if I could find it. Here. Was here. He talked about what the program meant to him. Mm. He looked on the web, saw here it is. If it can come up now. Um, hey, my name is, and he gives his name. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember me, but I wrote a poem for you when I was incarcerated in 2011. It was the poverty poem. I would like to say you taught me a lot about myself when you told me about my poem. And I'm reaching out to you to just say thank you, and I would love to work with you. I'd love to write to you for you anytime you can write about anything. I've gotten so much better in artistic since then. I grew up now, and I have a son, and I'm on a better life. Mm. But thank you for all you've done. One of the best people I came across. And then he tells me how to contact him. Mm. And I am asking him to do a blog for the website. Mm. That's very rewarding, Courtney, as you can imagine. Thank you for listening to Episode 30, Act 1 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Dale Davis, artist, educator, champion. Join us next time for Act 2. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. John O. Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the brand new pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry, the gram at teaching artistry with CJB, and now on YouTube. Check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and enjoy the hashtag Keep Making Art video series. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now.